0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio.
1: Samantha, thanks so much for joining us here today. This is actually the second part of uh, the second episode we're doing on your report because it was just so good. So we've already done an episode where Dan and I have kind of gone through and read some of it and distilled down some information, but we, it was such a great report and we cover a lot of reports here on the podcast. It was such a great report that we wanted to have someone who had put pen to paper and done some of the research and been involved in putting it together. So why don't we start things off by having you tell us and, and the audience a little bit about yourself, your background in, in real estate, and, and maybe what you do over at Cushman and Wakefield.
2: Sure. Well, I've been uh, in this industry in some capacity, construction, building, real estate, for over 30 years in Texas and now 25 years in Toronto, which doesn't seem like it, but time flies. (laughs) And (laughs) I've had various roles in this career construction management, architect, designer, uh, project management and most recently joining Cushman and Wakefield to lead their strategic consulting group. And my group oversees a portfolio uh, analysis, site selection, workplace strategy, change management, large-scale real estate strategy, asset strategy, whether it's buildings or land. We look at economic strategies, attraction and retention strategies for n- municipalities and or developers, et cetera. So we kind of have a pretty broad service line under my umbrella and I am in charge of Canada nationally and as of January I'm also in start in charge of consulting for the US
0: Wow awesome amazing so you got a lot of free time on your hands <laughs> And uh, obviously especially uh, qualified to discuss you know and I know in the report you discuss the comparing and contrasting the sort of I'm reluctant to use the word financialization of housing, but you know, the the institutional investment in in single family residential housing that we're seeing in the US that the report talks about that we're, you know, and makes a case for potentially seeing in Canada. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what compelled you and Cushman to write this report and what it covers, if you could sum up the key points.
2: Well, I won't take credit for the initial idea, which came from our multifamily uh, experts in the U.S. Of course, they've seen a lot of investment in the U.S. in institutional rental housing grow over the last 10 years, pretty much explode, especially across the Sunbelt states where it's cheaper to build. And, you know, they approached me and said, hey, does this idea really work for Canada? Let's explore it. So we partnered with them on this report. Um, they have an expert who contributed the report. She's my co-author, Christina. She's fantastic. And my team did a lot of the research in, in Ontario. I mean, I think we could do the, well, that's next steps. But anyway, we could do the whole report across Canada. I think it'd be quite interesting. Perfect. But,
1: uh, We're waiting for uh, I would, it. <laughs> I would love to do that. I
2: mean, the idea was to look at Ontario being the most populous, you know, province and where
1: of course. affordable
2: housing yeah. And rental housing is in extreme short supply. So, you know, just to look and see if this was something that would be advantageous for institutional developers. We know that there's a lot of, I call them mom and pop, but they're not really not mom and pop. You know, they're usually, you know, one, two, three, sometimes a group of investors that own 10, 15, 20 houses. That exist already. And that's, you know, a pretty thriving business. But the idea of institutionalizing would be to put, you know, more of not only an investment strategy behind it, but also a maintenance and upkeep, you know, property management strategy and all those things that come with like large scale capital investment. So, I mean, in doing this research and intuitively we knew there's a market there. I mean, you have to, I mean, incomes aren't as r- rising as fast as rental house, uh, housing prices are rising. So more and more people have to rent. And our stress tests are so stringent for people, you know, uh, buying a house that it, you know, makes rental the only possibility for many people as well. There's always a transient community of people moving in and out. So rentals are always going to be there, right? So we knew intuitively there was a market for it. The objective of the report was to look at really where is the most advantageous market for people to invest. So, you know, where in, where housing prices are rising higher than incomes and your population, they have a high... Communities that have a high growth population, these are the communities where you know, you see the most opportunity for investment. And I should know off the top of my head what the top five were, but you know, we don't know exactly. It? Sunbury, it et cetera.
1: Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie, Cornwall, Cornwall Chatham, Kent, Sault Ste. Marie. Yes. Yeah, we, we're actually lucky enough, Samantha, with that this is one of the reasons why we love the report so much. So Dan and I are both we fit into that small crap group of investors, you say. So, we, we've got a small fund ourselves, we've got uh, just over 50 units, primarily in two of the locations that were in the report uh, which we identified as, as great markets for a lot of the reasons that were in the report years and years ago. So, yeah, it's fascinating to see the you know a, a large part of our audience, uh, the 70,000 people that listen a month, they're part of those again they fit into that category of people that you're describing so it's interesting to see kind of the institutional level get into it and again you've 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 brought up great points on on housing affordability and um, you know the lack of density and I'd love to kind of switch over to maybe again you can speak to this from your background municipality zoning um, you know the design of of taking a house and, and turning it into a multifamily can you tell us about some of the next steps that we need to see on both the public and the private sector for for this to start to come into fruition a bit more?
2: Well, the public sector has eased some restrictions, which make this you know more possible. The densification of lots makes this very advantageous to investors. So adding laneway suites, garden suites, putting more than one house on a lot, all of those things are great. You know, they do ease the approval, zoning, construction process, et cetera. Unfortunately, it doesn't ease construction costs, which are still prohibitive to a lot of folks, investor groups included, because those mm-hmm. are, are, I mean, even though I think that they've sort of leveled off right now, just because of the situation we're in, they haven't dipped, right? So they're still high. And we have an enormous trade shortage. So even making those things a reality uh, sometimes forces you to go to substandard quality. So this is a problem across the board. Is it solvable immediately? No, not solvable right now. Uh, Something I think that the community colleges and other trade schools have been working at now for a while, but it's a long-term problem we have. And if you're on a construction site any given day, you'll hear everybody talk about it. There's just no traits. They're not qualified. They do terrible work. They have to repeat the work, etc. cetera. So one of the things I do think would be great, either from a public uh, investment opportunity or incentives or private, would be to really look at what can you do with high quality advanced manufacturing and housing and high quality production builds in, in let's say, build to suit rentals or whatever. But advances in construction techniques, rather than, rather than relying on the lack of skilled trades and just blaming them for the continued problem, we really need to invest in this. I do not know if that's happening. I don't think it is. I have not heard it is. I haven't heard you know somebody saying, well, let's embrace the housing industry and see how we can overhaul how we build houses for 200 years. That's what we should do. So that's, that's one big thing that's a holdback to, I think, new housing, renovated housing, etc. Then um oh my gosh, you asked me what what do I think what is next for now I've already forgotten Nick. Forgive me.
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a, that, yeah, no, not, not at all. It was a it was a lengthy question. Um so I'll go back to the question, but I before so it was just what, what do we need to see from the public and private sectors to to advance this. But I before we before we go there, um, yeah, I really I really love that point, right? Like the, the trade shortage, the skilled trade shortage is is so Drastic at this point. That even if we were to somehow, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a, an immigration policy or something like that. But even going to look at the immigration numbers, uh, what was it, Dan, in Q four or something like that in the second half of last year? Out of the five hundred thousand immigrants, four hundred and fifty five of them were skilled trades. So like zero point zero one percent. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. So if we're not going to be able to play catch up there. Where can we make up that ground? And and you're right, if we can have some kind of, you know, I don't know whether it's the modular or shipping container or, you know, slab on grade, drop drop in the plate drop in the house kind of thing of, of whatever size. I really like that idea. Right. Let's focus on prop tech and construction technology versus relying on humans to go get degrees and, you know, go through their get the red seal to become an electrician that we can trust to go out and, you know, put the electrical in the houses we need.
2: Yes. Well, and, and I think that, you know, in most, in many cases, uh, especially in communities in Ontario, you see the same housing type stamped around because it's a product of the post-war uh, catalog of houses, right? Which I know now they're reintroducing, which I think is a good idea. Same, they could do the same with laneway housing, garden suites, True. and maybe that mm-hmm. new catalog that CMHC is planning on coming out with will do that. But building those as components and or modular ones is a huge room for, I mean, we've got a lot for innovative companies who want to come in and do that. And I know of a few that do modular builds and things like that. And I myself, when I was building houses, I looked at a lot of those solutions. Most modular ones were substandard for what I wanted. And then some of the ones that were really great quality, more expensive than a stick build. So we haven't quite gotten that recipe right yet. I do mm-hmm. think, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and put together a think tank, or whatever, that, that would be what I would focus on. If I had a lot of money and I wanted to put it towards something, man, I would put it toward that. <laughs> as far as like public investment in this institutional real, rental housing, I think it's going to come. I think it's inevitable. It's just, it just makes so much financial sense. The, 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 ho- the things that may hold it back, public perception of institutionalizing rental housing you know, this is Canada, you know, we'd like to believe, or I do believe this, I'm an American slash Canadian, we are the kinder, gentler nation, we want everybody to have housing. <laughs> you know, you don't want to see housing as something that people are profiteering off of, et cetera. But housing is, a is has been, it's been that industry, it's been an industry that, that has a huge amount of profit in any way, whether it's construction, development, et cetera. I do think there are ways, though, to get around that. So there are programs that other companies have in the U.S. where they are renting housing to folks, but those house, those folks are also involved in the investment company for the housing. So it's almost like a build to own or, you know, you're renting and then you get a percentage of profit in the investment company, et cetera. So there's some, some mm-hmm. things I think that, that are aligned with the idea of the kinder, gentler nation, you know. That I, it would be great if some institutional housing would uh, companies, if they're large scale, would embrace some of these things. I know smaller scale companies probably can't afford to do that, but larger scale companies could. I do think, you know, if there was a focus on sustainability, health and safety, all of those things would be uh, great for the community. I know as a person who is considered buying property for rental and a lot of my friends, you know, have bought properties and they rent them out, et cetera. It is very hard to do from a landlord perspective. You worry constantly you're at risk because what happens if people don't pay their rent? So for, you know, clarifying some of those policies and working with those, the landlord tenant board and all those things, I think, you know, should happen as well to make it more advantageous for people to own, you know, or put a lot of their their money into properties to mitigate the risk. I'm too scared to do it for that reason. I have friends whose who's friends are uh, who's, who they've had people not pay rent for a year.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, there's, there's no shortage of horror stories on that side of things. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. I,
0: I think I have the record for the longest eviction out of anyone I know, which was 16 months that I didn't <laughs> receive rent. And it, and it was, uh, it was there's a criminal activity going on at the house and stuff like that. So it was not. Uh, we're constantly getting bylaw infractions and fines and stuff like. It was, so I, I mean I understand. So it 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 really begs the question, and I'll use it to lead into the next question that we have on the list, which is, you know, we, it, the mom and pop investor thing is is a challenge in a place like Ontario. Um, there are obviously more landlord friendly areas in in Canada but what is this whole let's call it the financialization of housing or the the leading into a more institutional rental like I'm of the opinion that a more corporate structure larger landlords could be it would be beneficial for both the tenant and for the landlord tenant system because they're more qualified in a lot of cases we're seeing purpose-built rental here in Ontario where you know, the builder, the, the future landlord is the person who built the home. So they're exceptionally qualified to, to be the owner of it. But, you know, broadly, what do you think the impacts here are on on the mom and pop investor, on the homeowner and on these institutional investors?
2: Well, I think there's opportunity for for both in the market. There's, there's opportunity for somebody who owns five properties or like yourselves, 50 properties or an institutional investor comes in and wants to do 200 properties. I think you know if an institutional investor can do build-to-rent communities, there's a lot of advantage in that. I do, mind you, as the designer and the design snob, I prefer not to see them like rubber stamped around like Monopoly houses. But actually, it's some character to them. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: well, that's where you come back in. (laughs) Yeah, and
2: following some great (laughs) urban planning uh, ideas, urban design ideas, but. I, th- I think there's room for that, and I, I like the idea of institutional investors because usually big companies like that can apply pressure to change systematic processes. That's what mom and pop companies can't do necessarily, uh, or don't have the time to do because usually, you know, you're it's it's it, man, you don't have the leverage to do. Let's just be honest. So, I think if we can get some responsible invest, you know, large scale capital to to do build to rent communities or even if they're use if they're doing scattered site, they can apply some pressure to make some things better. And maybe they can also contribute some profits to make some things better, right? So, you know, back to Habitat for Humanity or back to some of those other organizations who are advancing affordable housing. So there's some there's some advantages to that. I do think though, if they are not, if they do not have some values and a mission, and some policies that are a bit more altruistic, that then they'll be pushed back. And I think that's just Canadian society in general, right? Back to that kindler gentler nation. I think also though, if they do embrace those kind of ideas, they'll get more uptake. I think, you know, people want to be part of something that does good. So, and maybe I'm just too altruistic or too optimistic, but I would like to believe that that's true. That they could really make a difference, and look, we have a housing shortage. We're at a tipping point. Homelessness is out of control. Affordable housing is out of control. The more people who are contributing to the solution of this problem, the better.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, we talk about it all t- all the time on the show. I, I couldn't agree more. We need to see it from like the you know the so called the small cap citizen investors, but we need to see it more from from the big players, and and a lot of them have have. You know, housing starts are down, right? Like, you know, our, our population is growing at all-time highs, and, and and housing starts are down. So, we really do need to see the bigger players get involved. And you're right that you know the the benefit of being a big player is that you've you've got the ability to to influence change, whether through lobbying or government relationships or whatever that may be. So, I think that's a really great point there. And and again, it, it kind of you know this is all slowly leading us towards again i think you know we talk about a lot a lot on the show as well the renter's economy right canada is still such a young country if you look at a lot of the european countries home ownership rates are are a lot less than than they are here so mm-hmm. I think I think purpose built rentals, I think any kind of incentive or any kind of direction that that can help push this prob uh push this along and help you know slowly get us out of this problem that we've kicked the can down the road for the last thirty years basically I think is a good thing. sorry, go ahead no Samantha.
2: I was just gonna to say add to this we really need some creative thinking around this I mean every time I go into i live uh Uh, close to Kingston and Warden, And every time I go into my Canadian tire, which is at Danforth and Maine, I think, why is there not rental apartments above it? It makes no sense. You know, the idea that, oh, we have to keep spreading out toward, you know, Orangeville or up toward Blue Mountain or whatever makes no sense. There is opportunity within the city. What's holding us back are are silly zoning laws, you know, and a lot of it, like you should be able to put rental apartments above a commercial property, and you've got Loblaws, you know, and Canadian Tire, two of the biggest companies in Canada, sitting on a gold mine. So yes, large-scale institutional investors for rental housing partnered with some of those REITs. I think Canadian Tire and both Loblaws have their own REIT for their stores. Could solve a lot of that (laughs) quite fast, you know?
0: Anyway... In regards to you know, mentioning some of these large multinationals, um, in regards to the the groups that I think this report was designed for, it ha- what's the reception been like? Are our large multinational groups and and some of these larger landlords in the states or even builders in Canada responding to the report positively? To, are they expressing an interest in getting more involved in at scale? Rental ownership in Canada. Like, what has the industry response been since you put out this report? Because I know I've seen it on a bunch of feeds on LinkedIn and and Twitter and stuff like that. And I know a lot of people are talking about it. But I'm curious, kind of behind the curtain, are you getting emails from people saying, "Help us build a strategy. Uh, we want to own, you know, a billion dollars worth of real estate in 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 Canada."
2: Well, we have gotten quite a few calls. Uh, quite a few calls from investors, more like yourself, who own 50 units. You know. 30 units, 100 units, how can we grow and scale this? How can we find investors from other areas? As you know, there are some tricky things about bringing in money from other countries to invest in housing. So that's not an an easy solution. And this is where our multifamily group, though, in the States really does shine in looking at how we can make some of those things happen. So if anybody is listening to this, and they are interested in, in trying to scale up, connect with me and I can connect you with our multifamily group in the States. I think though that, uh, rumors are circulating <laughs> about ones coming in. And certainly we saw in the, uh, I think it was this week, we saw some news about Tricon. So, you know, I yeah. think that they're, they, I, I think it's I, again. I think it's inevitable. Would be would Cushman be happy if we got some work out of it? Absolutely. So if anybody's listening, <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of talented people at Cushman who can help make this happen, from getting the financing together and 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 also figuring out the strategy of where you should build and what you should build first. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, no, it's certainly a lot of talent over at Cushman as, as you know, with this report, seen in this report and a lot of others. And it's I love to hear that, you know, I'm sure there will be the bigger players, the more institutional level people coming and approaching you on this, but it's great to hear that the, you know, small cap investors are are chomping at the bit to get things done. And, and you know, our audience is, is, we do have institutional level uh, listeners and, and clients, but a lot of our audience is, is that those small cap people across the country. And more so than ever now, we've been talking to them about MLI Select because they are now trying to build what is CMHC's product that, that basically has the best terms and amortization lengths and, and interest rates on, on the market. So it's just, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see that that's where the response has been from more so than uh, more so than on on the bigger players.
2: Well, smaller players are more agile, so don't forget they're ready to go. Yeah. Bigger players, more risk. You got a lot of things to think about before you jump in. So, you know, generally slower moving. And um, but I do think that within this year we'll see some movement there, whether it's from Tricon or somebody else, or you know.
1: Hopefully. Yeah. Looking forward mm-hmm. to it. Samantha, thanks so much for for joining us. I think this has been a very valuable conversation. And again, thanks for the great work with you and your team on, on that report. Please do the one across Canada, so we can cover that and have you guys back on the show. Uh, I think Dan, we even joked about that. We're like, we have to convince. Yeah, we did in Canada. We did Yeah,
0: episode. I've been doing a lot of research on Canada-wide stuff. So if there's any any way, and we have a lot of data science products on that as well. Um, so I would right. be happy to help you out on on the coast to coast if there's any anything we can do. Well, let's get started. Yeah. Let's do it. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Love absolutely. it.
1: Love it. <laughs> Samantha, where can people get in touch with you, find out more about you, all that kind of stuff, if anyone has any other questions or anything?
2: I am so easy to find. You just Google Samantha Sonella and it pops up. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, my phone number is pretty public. It's, you know, uh, so they'll find me.
1: Love awesome. it. Okay, gotcha. And we'll yeah, we'll include your LinkedIn and uh, end a copy of the report in the, uh, in the
0: show notes. Awesome. Great, guys. Thanks Thank so you. much. Appreciate you. your
2: time. Bye-bye. Me too.
0: Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That uh, was an awesome interview. I was just as impressed with Samantha as I expected to be after reading the report. So I'm, I'm glad she really knew what she was talking about. And, and exciting kind of towards the end there that maybe we'll get to be involved in the in uh, helping with the research on, on the Canada-wide side.
1: Yeah. Did we just go into business with... with we, certain, we, class, yeah. we certainly tried.
0: We certainly tried. So we'll see if we make the cut there.
1: Can't, can't knock us for trying. Yeah. I mean, honestly... Um, she brought up some seriously good points something that really resonated with me was you know if we can't if we don't have the trades to build these homes what's the easier and better route is it to try to you know, import these trades, try to really incentivize trades. I mean, but then again, that's going to take years, right? Like, I mean, yeah, innovation is, your Carpenter- is the
0: easier route and innovation should be deflationary.
1: Yeah, exactly. So for her to look at and be like, you know, we need better construction technology. We need better construction implementation. I thought that
0: was really, uh really fascinating. For sure. On the note of going Canada wide, um, you know, we, it would be interesting to hear from the audience what they think those Canada wide, markets might look like cuz and we'll go through it here cuz they get they provide in the report and I know there was a little bit we didn't get to in the report so we're kind of going to finish off today's episode with what was missing from from the first episode we did about the report but they provide here this detailed analysis of target Ontario markets and I would be really interested to see what this list would look like coast to coast. So if you're a listener outside of Ontario, because we really don't, we want to try and avoid the center of the universe thing. And it sounds like Cushman has has a similar <laughs> objective because, you know, yeah. if, if if they're going to help these institutions achieve scale in in rental across the country, they really do have to to focus and take and look at some of the markets where things work really well across the country. So send us a message to the show and let us know what city uh, you think should be on this report if it was coast to coast or even if you feel so compelled leave us a review say I'm checking in from Saskatoon and I think it should be included in the in the Canada-wide report so across Ontario they they identified 34 markets somewhere combined where they studied within this report to determine the viability of rental housing investment in those markets the criteria that they used was basically Median home prices had to be below a million, which made the ROI for acquiring, renovating and operating single family homes as rental properties to be feasible and a win-win for both the operator and the renter. And I mean, this is something that we talk a lot about in, in the course and other things is you know getting that price point down so that you can actually create value and scale. They have to be located near some sort of major transit corridor facilitating market access, migration and uh, access to an attractive employment market. So, you know, be on a highway where you can drive to go to your job, which is necessary for a lot of people to pay rent at least one connection to a provincial highway or other major transit route. So you will see, like, this is where you don't see an Uxbridge, but you do see a Georgina as an example, which is funny because Nick's from Uxbridge and I'm from Georgina. Then because Uxbridge just is just, well, 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 I'm right? always just saying like Uxbridge, well, it's, it's a blessing and a curse for a place like Uxbridge because it's, it's far from the highway. So, you know, people really have to want to live there want to live there. And you get all these people who just love Uxbridge, you know, <laughs> whereas Georgina, it's like right on the highway. So you live there because the highway's there.
1: You just live there because you drove the highway and it stopped there. Like okay, well, end of the road.
0: Drive till you qualify. I just did it. it. As far as we're going, drive till
1: there's no highway left. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and then yeah, it's it's interesting, Dan, because a lot of these, a lot of the uh, kind of key points that they have here for for the the analysis of the markets. It's exactly what we tell people to look for when we're telling
0: them how to pick a market. Yeah, no, it is. Well, th- this report has been great for just validating us, which is something that <laughs> we need. Self-validation. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. really good. I was reviewing my 2024 uh, lists of uh, New Year's resolutions and I just basically crossed off the 2023 from last year and changed it to 2024. So, I need <laughs> some validation that uh, what was, we're talking was about on the show is from- right. from... Yeah, get Validation from Cushman and Wakefield was, was a specific one on the yes, list. Yes, it was. That was on the <laughs> list for this year. So, so run me through what these markets are. So, the, the, the last pieces of the population had to be greater than 20,000 people for economies of scale. So, they've identified yeah, primary, one. secondary, and tertiary markets. So, why don't you start me off with a list of primary markets here, Nick?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of them here. There's there's 34. So, I'm not going to read all of them. But what I'll do is maybe read the top
0: Well, just do the primary. Do the eight primary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we primary is made up of Hamilton, Kitchener, Waterloo, London, Ottawa, Oshawa, Saint Catharines, and
0: Welland, Whitby, and Windsor. And then secondary secondary markets would be Barrie, Brantford, Cambridge, Chatham, Kent, Clarington, Guelph, Canada, Kingston, Sarnia, Sault Saint Marie, Sudbury, and Thunder Bay. You might as well just read the tertiary markets. Yeah, so I guess I take at that this point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, 34. It might see if you can do it a-
0: faster than I did secondary markets, which is 12.
1: <laughs> Belleville, Quinty, Bowmanville, Newcastle, Cornwall in number three, Georgina, Dan, there you go. Leamington, Lindsay, Kawartha, New Tecumseh, Norfolk County, North Bay, Orangeville, Aurelia, Peterborough, St. Thomas. Timmins and woodstock and those 15 make up the tertiary markets that could also be
0: a list of the beauteous towns in ontario too just just great places every single one of those so should we maybe we'll go through the list here of the top cities as well ranked by stabilized yield Mm -hmm. just as a refresher from from last episode and then the idea of yield on cost and then we'll wrap up on the strategies in ontario perfect yeah so yeah give me the top cities based on on stabilized yield here. Yeah, so
1: Thunder Bay is coming in at about six and a half. Sault Ste. Marie, uh, basically the same thing. Chatham-Kent were about five and a half. Cornwall, about five and a half. And North Bay, about five and a half as well. I have
0: to say Chatham-Kent is one of the most slept on markets, honestly, especially because of where it is. It's like it's very far south. The weather's like climate's actually noticeably marginally better. I don't know if it is. slept on. I, I, re, I remember it hearing about true. that one. It's like one of the like, that's like
1: a legacy investment market. Now it might've kind of skipped like the the COVID cycle because yeah. all the other markets got a lot more attractive, but I, you know, I've been following people investing there for like a decade, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's something that we don't have a ton of exposure to Dan, but I know there's a bustling investment community down there. If go start buying I think we got to put, we should just, just so we can go to Go check it out. Yeah, so an excuse to visit a city,
0: and and maybe worth looking at what's next on that list, just because I mean, not everybody wants to invest in municipalities that are that far away from the core. Mm-hmm. So you know, the first you you start going down the list, and you get to North Bay, Simcoe, Kingston, Essex Region, Ottawa is probably the, the first major city, Ottawa, yeah. and then Windsor. Another big city, yeah, and um, and then if you go to the, the the it changes a little bit when you go to development yield on cost. And remember, yield on cost is a metric that investors use to calculate a project based on the cost and projected returns. So it's basically the net operating income divided by the total project cost. You know, it could be uh, also called a return on cost or cost cap rate or going in cap rate. But um, if you look at this development yield on cost, you have Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay, Cornwall. North Bay, and then Chatham-Kent, but then you get down to Simcoe, and then you're looking at like a Burlington, which is in the GTA.
1: Which is crazy. Wild to see from there, my yeah. perspective.
0: Burlington, Kingston, Essex region, Ottawa up there again, and then Tilsonburg, Windsor. And actually Tilsonburg was was next on the previous list as well. So a couple of cities mm-hmm. that are really worth thinking about when you're ranking them kind of bottom to top, or sorry, top to bottom. And I would just really advise anyone to, to check this report out. If you, like Samantha said, if you search her name on, on Google, you'll find um, her LinkedIn, and there's a bunch of stuff from the report there. And hopefully, we can we really can contribute to to doing something like this uh, on a Canada wide basis. It would be such a cool cool little crossover for the Canadian Real Estate such Investor a, yeah. Podcast to be doing something with that. You know, adv- helping to advance the strategies of our of our listeners. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about these strategies that they mentioned here, Nick. Do you want to go through the strategies that? Um, that might make sense for people to invest in these markets?
1: Yeah, for sure. So some of the strategies they outlined uh, may include uh, single family rentals in higher growth markets inside the GTA, so close to Toronto, Oshawa is a good example, um, and that's due to the stability of those markets based off their proximity to, of course, the center of the universe here, Toronto.
0: <laughs> yeah. The next on the list would be single family rental in high growth and industry focused markets, such as Canada or Kitchener-Waterloo, which could cap capture corporate rentals focused on the tech industry or well-paid transient salaried workers. You see a lot of this in the US with people investing doing medium term rentals for traveling nurses, actually.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, great point. The next one's actually really interesting as well single family in uh, high growth, high price to income markets. So, where the prices are a lot, prices of housing is a lot more expensive versus how much money people are actually making. And they use Bowman here, Bowmanville here as an example. Because the trends in Bowmanville are, are increasing unaffordability affordability uh, for home ownership.
0: Yeah. And then the next one is single family rental in smaller, low cost, low growth outlier markets such as Timmins, which have high rent floors, which I mean, Timmins is a great example because the high, that high rent floor. And this is where you would start thinking about how this would apply for markets like Alberta. As an example Mm -hmm. where you know like there's some some investors we we just got a meetup community started in a place like red deer as an example where there's a lot of people working on the on the rigs that are making a lot of like you know really high income right so that sets your rent floor high and and so you get a high income area with a cheap entry because a lot of those people who are working in those in those markets are, are more transient or they're not they don't plan to live in that city permanently and so yeah, totally. and so what ends up happening as a result of that is your house price doesn't really go up high because they're not bidding house prices up. So you get high rents but a low entry price low so they call it low cost with a high rent floor. I mean, there's I think there's a lot of examples of that on a coast to coast basis of that strategy being really applicable. So
1: yeah and and uh I mean these are all great strategies so far all stuff that you know we've been doing when we're looking at properties for clients or or for our own acquisition so I love to see it here the uh the final two they've got here is uh build to rent so purpose built rentals CMHC MLI select we've talked about it a million and one times and of course multifamily so you know adding units so essentially just increasing density of of existing products. so really great list of strategies there and and again, nice to see the validation from, from Cushman and Wakefield on all the stuff we've been talking Great about. Great way to start the year, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Make sure you go and follow or reach out to Samantha on LinkedIn or, or via email, whatever. Uh, if you have any other questions for her wealth of knowledge, make sure you email us if you have any questions for us and, and go check out the report. It'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we'll see you on the next one. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a Member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.